To get us started in the right direction today, I want to put a a line um, up in front of you. It says this, the key to wisdom is knowing all the right questions. The key to wisdom is knowing all the right questions. There was a social media experiment. Everybody, the the question was, what's the most important question you can ask? And lots of people from all walks of life chimed in about what is the most important question in your life that you can ask. Answers came in like this, why am I here? Somebody said, that's the greatest question you can ask in life. Somebody said, what is my duty? That's the greatest question for them. What have I done today? that will make tomorrow better? Pretty good question. Somebody said that was the most important one you could ask. Another person said, what is the mission of my life? Here's an interesting one. Who will cry when you die? Ooh. Somebody said, here's the most important question you can ask. Where's my cell phone? We ask that all the time. Somebody else said, will you marry me? Is the most important question. What is truth? What if today was my last day? All of those are important questions. One guy chimed in and said, well, I actually have three questions that I think are the most important question. The first one is just why? And he's taking the Simon Sinek approach there in why. The second, he said, is what's for supper? And the third, he said, this is the most important question. Who's going to pay for all of this? That might be your most important question at lunchtime today, okay? Who's going to pay for all of this? In our text, Jesus asks one question. He asks it in two different ways. And I will submit to you that it is the most important question that anyone will ever ask. And so this section, as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, this section this week is pretty short. It just has this scene in Caesarea Philippi, and then pretty much some teaching after that, and then the transfiguration, okay? So it's not very long, but it is absolutely the center and the turning point of the entire book of Mark. So far in the story, Jesus has gained a following from the crowd, but from here on, it's not just about the crowds, it's about a march straight to the cross. And so we start in our text, and it says that Jesus takes his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was way north from Galilee. It was a Gentile region. It was, a, it was away from the normal ministry region where Jesus and his disciples spent time. It was probably 30 miles or so, which would have amounted to a 14-hour walk north of their home base. And they only go there on this one occasion. Jesus doesn't ever take his disciples back there again. And so the question is, why? Why does he take the time to go to this place. And when we figure out the surroundings of this place, we have our answer. Caesarea Philippi is an area that is known for worship. And they worship anything and they worship everything. In this area, there were no less than 14 different temples that were dedicated to various ancient religions. Uh, Most prominent Among them was one place dedicated specifically to the pagan god Pan. Uh, Originally, the city, Caesarea Philippi, was actually called Panion after the god Pan. A guy named Herod Philip came in, and he renamed the town, 
and he renamed it Caesarea Philippi because he was Philip, but also because he wasn't a dummy and he knew where the money was. It was in Rome, and so he dedicated the town to Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. I wonder if we could do that in our little town here. What would it mean to rename our, our place Fort Elon? I wonder if that'd help, right? That's what he did. And in the center of this town, there was one more attraction. It was a massive white marble temple, and it was dedicated to the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar for whom the town was named, and in that temple they would worship Caesar. And it's against this geographical backdrop that Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? The single greatest question you'll ever ask in your life is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The apostles give an answer. Uh, Their response is uh, insight and it's telling. Uh, It tells us how uh, the crowds pictured Jesus, what the public perception of of him was. Uh, some, Some said, well, they say that you're like John the Baptist. Others say you're like Elijah or one of the prophets, and those comparisons put Jesus on a level of some spectacular people, right? Prophets and miracle workers and things that have meant so much to Jewish people in their history. And yet, those comparisons sell Jesus short. He's after more than that. And so he stares at the 12, and he asks the very same question but with a different object. He says, not who do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? Now, these disciples have made a lot of confessions before this as a part of the story. Even up to this point, we see that the disciples have called Jesus the Lamb of God. They've called him the Son of God, after he's walked on the water and calmed the winds and the waves, they've called him the Holy One of God. They've even called him the Messiah before this moment. But this moment is different because Jesus asks for it. All of those other confessions were kind of a response to something that was going on after an astounding miracle or something like that. They say, oh my goodness, who are we in the presence of? But this is different. Who do you say that I am? And it's a dramatic picture. I want you to picture this very common, ordinary person from Galilee with 12, again, very ordinary men around him. And at the moment, the religious authorities are plotting to kill this very common Galilean because he's a heretic. And he stands in an area that is littered with temples, temples to Syrian gods and Greek gods, and even uh, there's a lot of ancient history of Israel wrapped up in this area. There's Caesar worship going on within their eyesight. There's even a place called the Gates of Hades that is located there. And of all places, this man named Jesus stands and asks his disciples who they believe him to be. And here's the answer he expects. Son of God. That's amazing. It's as if 
Jesus deliberately sets himself up against this background of the, all of the world's religions, all of the world's philosophies, all of their history, all of their splendor, and demands to be compared with them and to have the verdict given in his favor. Simon Peter speaks up. Because he's weighed the situation, he's putting together what he knows of Jesus in front of him. He realizes more than ever that nobody who wasn't God himself could have done the things that Jesus has done. It's God himself that they've been following. Who else but God could walk on the water and calm the storm? Who else but God could feed 5,000 people with just a few uh, lunchables? Who else but God can heal a deaf, mute man and a blind man and cast out demons and raise little kids back from the dead? Who else but God can heal infirmities with just a touch, not his own touch, but someone else's touch? And Peter speaks for the group of disciples, and he articulates on behalf of the group the peace on which this all rests. He says, we get it. We get it. The reason you are able to do all of these things is because you are the Christ. Christ isn't just Jesus' last name. Uh, it isn't Jesus' last name at all. We, we've said that before in here. Christ is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. They both mean the same thing, Christ and Messiah. Just one is Greek, one is Hebrew, and it just means anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. The anointed one, the Messiah, was God's promised king who would be sent to Israel to sit on the throne of King David forever. He was God's chosen person. And the disciples who have been so confused to this point. They've been so confused about who Jesus is and about what he is trying to do. Finally, at the, in this scene and in the words of Peter, see Jesus for who he really is. He is God's Messiah. He is God's chosen one. He is the one God sent to liberate Israel from their bondage and extend Israel's border all over the earth. Jesus, you are the Christ. Who do you think I am? You are the Christ. And so, after that declaration, they immediately pull their phones out and they change their Facebook status to Christ follower, because that's what you do, right? This was the pivotal moment for all of them, because they're suddenly proclaiming, we will die for you. You are the king. Wherever you go, we will follow. And that confession of Peter's is still the confession that Jesus is after today. He's after that confession from you. He's after that confession from me. It is the most important question you will ever answer. Who is Jesus? Do you believe him to be the Christ, the Son of God? I think there's probably a lot of people in this room that do. And if you do, just repeat after me. I believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. Maybe you're in a situation where you're not quite there yet. You're still trying to figure out who this Jesus is and his life and what he's all about. Can I just encourage you to keep searching, keep following him? But at the end of the day, just to call him good or wise or powerful or influential, 
those things sell him short. He is no less than the Christ, the Messiah, sent to save the world. And so, they make this revelation. Jesus says, I want you to keep this news silent. Uh, and he's done this before, after miracles and such. And so, they get out the non-disclosure agreement. They all sign it before they go out because it is still too early for the crowds to accept Jesus as the Messiah without some in-depth teaching first. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 31 says, he begins to teach what the Messiah will be and do. And as he does, he calls himself by his favorite title for himself. He says, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is found all over the Old Testament, but Daniel 7 specifically gives us insight into this phrase. Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 was a very normal human-like figure who was surprisingly capable of some very godlike things. And so, Son of Man is a title for a very human person doing things that only God could do. Does that sound a little bit like Jesus? Say yes, yes. That's why he likes the name, Son of Man. If who is Jesus is the most important question we could ever ask, then we get the explanation of why it is the most important question we could ever ask in what Jesus says here. He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, in other words, not in parables. A lot of things that he's taught along the way have been in parables and they're kind of clouded and you have to think it through and figure it out what he's meaning. Not here. This is plain language. Nobody is going to misunderstand what I mean. And you and I, well, we've skipped to the end of the story. We know what he means, right? When he starts talking about the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, we know what that means. We know that he's talking about being condemned by the Jewish leaders. Those three entities that he names make up the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the supreme judicial body of all of the Jewish people. And so this supreme judicial body will actually condemn him to death. They will turn him over to the Romans, and the Romans will then crucify Jesus on a cross. And so we know that the suffering he's talking about here is the cross. Now, here's what I want you to see, and it's highlighted up there. You can barely miss it. He says, the Son of Man must suffer. I must suffer. Not just, I will suffer. But I must suffer. This is the way it has to go. I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. Later in the story, Jesus will find himself on the last night that he is on the earth alive. He will find himself in a garden and he will cry out to God, is there any other way? He knows the cross is ahead of him. He will say, can you take this cup from me? The answer he gets from heaven is, no, this is the way it has to go. It is the only way. Why? Because without the cross, you and I know this, there's no payment for sin. 
Without the cross, there is no mercy for the sinner. Without the cross, God could say to us, I love you, but we would never believe it because there would be no justice in the world. Without the cross, God could say, I'm a just God. He could dole out all the justice that we ever deserve because of our sin, but we wouldn't ever be able to call him then a, a God of love, and we wouldn't want to. It's either justice or love. Which, which is it? Without the cross, you have to choose. But with the cross, both justice and love win the day. Jesus had to die for you and for me, but I also want you to see here that Jesus was glad to die for you and for me. Peter and, his, and the rest of the disciples hear this talk that Jesus makes that he'll have to suffer. And right away, they have a big problem with this. The problem is that this is not the kind of Messiah that they've been taught about. This is not the kind of Christ that they envision. They expect the Messiah to come and win an earthly kingdom with a very human army, but that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. No, he's, he's not talking about getting an army together at all. He's just talking about walking into Rome and surrendering himself right off the bat. These guys expect a liberation from Rome through a conquering king, but what Jesus is talking about is a liberation from sin through a risen Lord. And that does not take a human army, it just takes a perfect sacrifice. And so the more Jesus talks, the more the disciples move and shift around in their chairs and they all glance at each other in anxiety and Peter reads the room and he knows that this has to stop. This, all this talk that Jesus is making of suffering and dying, it has to stop. And so Peter interrupts. He, he says, hey guys, take a coffee break. Uh, Jesus, I need to talk to you for a quick sec. The text says he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. It's a strong word that says that Peter, in no uncertain terms, tells Jesus that this is not the way it will go. And in Peter's words, Jesus sees Satan. Satan has already stepped into the ring with Jesus multiple times before now. The most notable is back in Mark chapter 1 when he takes them out into the desert and he tempts him for 40 days. And this is just another round of that temptation. And at each bell, Satan is presenting Jesus an opportunity to avoid the suffering of the cross. You can accomplish everything you need to accomplish as the Messiah without suffering. Just jump off the temple. They'll come and save you. The angels will come and save you. And here it is again. You don't need the cross. Jesus sees nothing but Satan, and it's a temptation for him. It's a temptation that needs to be rejected forcefully, and so he spins around and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus' greatest rebuke ever is right here. He looks someone that he created straight in the eye and calls them Satan, Jesus' greatest rebuke, does not fall on a Pharisee. It does not 
fall on an unbeliever, it falls on this disciple who has just been the first person ever to call him Christ. We could say it this way, Peter was the very first Christian. The rebuke is not of Peter. The rebuke is Peter's idea, and it was the idea that was satanic. What was it? Here it is. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go to the cross. If you and I read the story of Jesus, if we read the gospel and do not see in it that the main thing that Jesus came to do was to die, and we do not see that everything else he did is superfluous, then you are no different than Peter. I am no different than Peter. If we don't see that the cross is the centerpiece, then we are in the grip of Satan as well. One of the things that is so astounding to me is to note the timing of when Satan shows up in this picture. It wasn't when Peter confessed who Jesus was. No, Satan only shows up when Peter starts insisting that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, does not have to die. Satan shows up the moment Peter proclaims that the cross was unnecessary. And it's those words, it's that idea that Jesus knew Satan was present. We could say it this way, that Satan only shows up when the cross gets in the way. Satan knows that the cross is everything, that there's no forgiveness without the cross. There's no resurrection without a cross. There's no salvation without a cross. There's no life without a cross. There's no God without a cross. And the reason that who is Jesus is the most important question you'll ever ask is the cross cross. In September of 1999, a missionary traveled to Kampong Tom province in northern Cambodia. And it was a very isolated area. Most of the villages and villages, villagers there followed Buddhism or spiritism. Christianity was virtually unheard of in this region. But he arrived in one particularly, preached all around the villages and didn't go too well. He arrived in one small rural village and he began to preach about Jesus. And all of a sudden, they are embracing him very warmly. That was very unexpected. He hadn't had that kind of reception. And so he asked all the villagers about their openness to the gospel. One old woman came forward out of the crowd and she bowed to him and she took his hands in hers, and she said, we've been waiting for you for 20 years. And then she told him the story of the mysterious God who had hung on the cross. In the 1970s, if you know anything about Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge took over, and it was a brutal communist-led regime and they executed untold numbers of people. They destroyed everything in their path. If you were influential at all in the country of Cambodia, you were probably on their list and ended up dead. The Khmer Rouge made their way through northern Cambodia, and they came to this village. 
And in no uncertain terms, they immediately rounded up the villagers. They said, you are going to die. And so we need you to start digging your own graves. They did not have a choice in this. And so they began to dig, preparing themselves to die. And as they were standing at the holes that they had just made for themselves, they began to scream out to whoever they thought would listen. Some screamed to Buddha, some screamed to demon spirits, some screamed to their ancestors. They prayed to anyone that they thought would listen. One of the women at the grave that she had just dug started to cry based on a faint childhood memory that popped into her mind. Her mother, she remembered, had told her a story about a God who had hung on a cross. And she thought to herself, I don't remember anything else about that, but I remember that much. And surely if this God that I don't know who hung on a cross had known that kind of suffering, then surely he would have compassion on me right now, on us. And so she began to pray to this God who hung on a cross. A few minutes went by and she recognized that others around her started to pray the same prayer. And before long, the whole village begins to pray this prayer. Her solitary cry became one great wail as they all prayed it together, praying to this God that they did not know, but who had suffered and hung on a cross. And as they continued to face their own graves, they wailed this out. A few minutes went by, they realized that the wailing had turned to quiet crying, and a few more minutes went by, and they realized that there was silence, an eerie silence in the jungle of northern Cambodia. A few of them got the courage to turn around and face their captors. And when they did, they realized they were gone. There was no one there. And this woman, still holding this missionary's hand, said, we have been waiting 20 years for you to come and tell us the rest of the story about this God who hung on a cross. And now you're here. Tell us, who is this God? It's the most important question they could have ever asked. It's the most important question for you, and it's the most important question for me. Who is Jesus? Because here's the truth. We are all digging our own graves. We are all standing, looking at the hole that we are going to be buried in, We have this enemy of sin and death in our life. But we also have a Christ who says, you know what? I have come to save you from that enemy. I went to a cross. I hung there to save you from that enemy. If you'll just pick up your cross, if you'll just follow me, you'll be able to turn around and see that the enemy of sin is gone. The enemy of guilt and shame is gone. The enemy of this monster of death, it will disappear into the jungle. And we can live forever because the cross of Jesus got in the way of our own death. 
because he hung on a cross for us. The way we're going to pray today is this. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, you are the bringer of God's kingdom to the earth. Jesus, you are the restorer of all that is broken. You are the giver of life with the power and the keys of death and hell in your hands. You are the Christ. And if we will die to you, we will never taste death but only have life. You are the Christ that must die, but in your death is a resurrection, and in your death is an invitation to come and live. And so you, to you, Jesus, to Christ, we say, Maranatha. It means come, Lord, come. By the cross, would you save us from the grave that we are standing over? And all the people said, 